Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Good morning, good morning. It's, um, it's so good to, to be with you. Uh, hello to Westside and to Battersea and to all those watching online. Um, it's great to be together and to be kicking off a new series. My name is Mike. For those of you that I have another privilege of meeting, I would love to meet you if I haven't. Um, so please do come say, uh, say hello uh, after I finish speaking, probably is preferable. Um, <laughs> but today I'm going to jump straight into um, to talking because, um, uh, well, just kicking off the series because I got a fair bit to say and I don't want to go too long, so let's jump straight into it. And I'm also sure you're wondering why on earth you have a 50-pound bill uh, on your chair. I don't know how long it took you to realize. Um, they are across the sites. Um, they're in every single site. And I don't know how long it took you to realize that it wasn't real. Um, was it uh, out the corner of your eye you saw it and thought it's your lucky day, or what is the church doing with my regular committed giving? Um, <laughs> putting it on the chair for everyone else to enjoy. Uh, no, uh, maybe it was the specimen sign on the front or uh, the fact that it's 25% larger uh, than a normal 50-pound bill um, or the fact that when you turn it over, there is nothing on the back. Um, I don't know what it was, um, but uh, I don't know how you expect uh, federal agents, those who work in official positions, to recognize counterfeit money. Have you ever thought about that? Um, has anyone ever told you how exactly that works? Um, that when federal agents are managing bills of money uh, in their hands and are trying to determine whether it's counterfeit or it's real, the process of their training begins with handling the genuine. So the real money is placed in their hands and they are told to touch, to tilt, to look at, and to look through. And they're told to look for all of the different watermarks and marks on the bills that give away hints of its uh, genuineness. And the reason it starts with the genuine being placed in their hands is so that the moment a fake bill comes before them, they can spot it. That is why it begins by studying the genuine. They get to know the real so they can recognize the counterfeit. See, a bill that is, is not genuine um, has the promise. It has a, a kind of promise of doing something, but it doesn't have the power um, to actually do it. That it undercuts itself the moment you realize it isn't what it appears to be. So when we're talking about counterfeit gods, we're really talking about things that have an appearance of or a promise of power. But in reality, they have no ability to deliver on what they promise or appear to do. And the Bible calls these idols. The counterfeit gods, the Bible calls idols. So why talk about idolatry uh, in the 21st century? Why talk about it today? Well, it's because it's the most frequently discussed issue in Scripture. It's there right in the very beginning. It's the original error that humanity makes uh, in the Garden of Eden, where they choose to worship and serve uh, something else other than God. It's repeatedly spoken against by Moses and the prophets. It's spoken about by Jesus. It's there from beginning to end as the big issue of Scripture. Why? Why is this the big issue? Why, why does the Bible talk about it so much? 
Well, in talking about idols, it's describing our drift from love of God to love of lesser loves and things. And this drift away from loving God and putting God at the center of our lives is the factor that drives sin and destruction in our life. See, sin is really a byproduct of what we choose to love or not love. There's an original movement, there's an original decision, and that's the direction that our love flows in our lives. So in Vineyard 61, we believe that God has us in a, a season of consecration. And if you're new to church or you're new to V61, you've never heard that word before, what it really means is to bring ourselves before God, to present ourselves before God, and to say, Lord, here I am, ready to do your will. Here I am, I'm ready to do your will. That's what consecration is about. And do you know the first thing that goes in a season of consecration or when consecration happens? The first thing to leave is our idols, our rival gods and allegiances, our distractions and our distortions. In consecration, we come as we are because we know we need God. We're tired of recycled half-truths. We're tired of lukewarm spirituality. We're done with the counterfeit. We want the real. That's what happens in a season of consecration. That's why we need to talk about counterfeit gods and idols. I do need to give credit where credit is due before I forget. Um, Timothy Keller, if you ever heard of him, um, he is an incredible Christian thinker, writer, and a pastor from New York City, a city not too dissimilar from the one that we are, are currently in. And so that the title of the series is really drawn from the title of his book, Counterfeit Gods, and we really do need to give him credit for some of the thoughts and ideas that we use. So I highly encourage you to read this book. Uh, it's brilliant. It's about 150-odd pages, and it's, um, it's, it's fairly mind-blowing. So let's give credit where it's due. In this series that we're doing, we want to focus on three main counterfeit gods that appear in our personal lives and in the surrounding culture um, around us. And these are love, money, and power. We want to look at love, money, and power over the next six to seven weeks together. But before we go any further, I do feel like I need to clarify our approach to this just a little bit so expectations are set so we feel clear. As a leadership team, as we've thought about this and prayed about this, we, we believe it's important to say up front that these talks, specifically the love talks, will not address the sexuality and gender identity conversation. I realize this might anger some of you, it might be sad for some of you, it might be a relief to others of you, maybe all for different uh, reasons, I'm not sure. We also recognize that silence on this particular subject is not an effective long-term solution. So please know we're not burying our heads in the sand, we're not choosing to gloss over it or not to think about it or to engage. Uh, we will come to this conversation sometime next year. We're also so aware of the complexity of these issues, theologically, culturally, pastorally, and so we want to take our time to do our praying, to do our thinking, to do our talking, and to do our researching before going on this journey as a community together. And that's what we're doing. That's the journey that has already started with us as a leadership team. So as we prepare for this conversation that we're going to be getting into at some point next year, could we ask for your patience? and your trust. 
And if you do have questions at the moment, um, you're welcome to chat to any of your site pastors or to Viv and to Steve if you need clarification on any of that. I do feel like that we need to say that upfront to set some expectations. Um, if that feels confusing to you, if you're new to church, you're not really sure what's going on, really what this is about is that we as a church and as leaders are so keen on helping people to navigate their faith in the world that we're actually in with the questions that we really have. That's why we're talking about this and want to engage. With that said, let's pray, and I want to jump into the themes for today. Father, thank you for this time together Thank you for an opportunity to, to dive into this theme and this topic that is so near and dear to your heart. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be present, you would be here, and that you would make this word alive and real to each of us as we speak over these next six or seven weeks. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so the title for today is a bit of a mouthful. Um, but I'm going to do what it says on the tin, so I'll do whatever the title says. The Idol Factory, Identifying and Resisting Rival Gods. So the first thing I want to do is I want to talk about the human heart as an idol factory, spending the most time on that because I feel like that's a pretty big claim. I need to make sure that we agree or at least on board a little bit so that I can move from that. I want to spend time on that, and then I want to talk about how we identify idols in our hearts, and then lastly, how we resist idols in our hearts. So the human heart is an idol factory. How do we identify the idols in our hearts? How do we resist them? So let's start with the human heart is an idol factory. What is the greatest commandment in the Bible? Okay, some of you are saying it out loud. That's great. I was actually just expecting you to reflect uh, internally. But, <laughs> but that's great. That's exactly right. So I don't know what came to mind uh, for you but, but here it is. Jesus was asked this exact same question in Mark's Gospel, chapter 12. I'm going to read it out for you from verse 28. It should come up on the screen. One of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the first of all? Jesus answered, the first is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. That's the greatest commandment in the scriptures, according to Jesus. I think that's a fairly trustworthy source. So let's agree that that is the greatest commandment that there is in scripture, that God is one, that God alone is worthy to be worshipped. Old Testament scholar Nathan MacDonald uh, says that these verses are really a call for allegiance to God alone. A call for allegiance to God alone. Why is this the first commandment? Well, it's long been recognized that if you disobey the first commandment, you disobey all the others. Or said positively, if you keep it, you keep all the others. If you love God as the central reality in your life with all your heart, soul, strength, mind you will not uh, progress to breaking any of the other commandments that come after the first commandment. So sin is connected to our loves, the direction of our love, as I said a moment ago. Every sin starts with the failure to love God as first of all. 
So someone once said that the root of evil is not money, it's the suspicion that God is not good. The root of evil is not money, it's the suspicion that God is not good. And that faint suspicion that starts in our minds and our hearts and grows uh, in doubt and sighs in our hearts and minds eventually leads us to try and choose other things as safety nets and fail-safes because we're not sure if God is able or capable. We're suspicious of his goodness, his desire to provide and to supply our every need. We believe that something else is more able to provide for and satisfy us. So we're tempted through inner desires and outer conditioning to turn to rival gods. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel calls these idols of the heart in chapter 8. But John Calvin more memorably puts this as in this way. He says the human heart is an idol factory. The human heart is an idol factory. And that's quite a, it's a really, in a sense, sharp and helpful graphic. You can almost imagine an assembly line uh, being rolled out. And on this assembly line is kind of idol after idol after idol, just being mass produced on, on mass. And that being a picture of the human heart and our propensity and capacity to produce rival gods and things to love. It happens all the time. Why do we do this? Why is, why is this propensity in us to worship other things or to worship anything at all? We do this because to, to be human is to worship. To be human is to worship. We have to live with something on the throne of our lives. And we worship what we give our time, our money, our skills, and our resources to. It's revealed in our daydreams and our nightmares and what we believe we cannot live without. What we worship is revealed in these things. You may have heard me read this quote before, but I think it's really relevant and powerful, so forgive me, I'm gonna read it again. It's by a guy called David Foster Wallace, who's an incredible um, author, novelist. Uh, he wrote a book, most well-known, uh, I think, called Infinite Jest. Uh, I don't know if you've read it, but it doesn't matter. The quote's important. Here it is. He says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out and so on. Powerful pictures, powerful quote for us to be thinking about. Foster Wallace is not a Christian himself, but he recognizes this reality to human existence. And perhaps these uh, idols or, or objects of worship would not normally make our usual lists, right? When you think of idols, uh, perhaps we probably have figures of stone, of wood, of metal that come into our minds. It conjures up images of people lying prostrate before their God of choice, um, whatever object that might be. 
Or we think of the next pop star, anointed uh, by Simon Carl, maybe. <laughs> but in fact, idolatry is an internal allegiance that plays out in day-to-day life, showing up in what we trust, love, and do. Let's say that again. Idolatry is an internal allegiance that plays out in our day-to-day life, showing up in what we trust, love, and do. People of all faiths and none have these kinds of commitments. See, ours is not a very different society from the ancient society that we kind of picture and, and think down on. Each is dominated by its own set of idols. In our day, the gods of beauty, money, and achievement have the same massive proportions in our individual lives and cultures. See, here's the truth. We cannot eliminate God without creating God substitutes. We can't eliminate God without creating God substitutes. Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, culturally, we will ultimately look to either God or the free market, the state, the elites, the will of the people, science and technology, military might, human reason, racial pride, or something else to make us corporately significant and secure and to guide our choices. We have to look to something. Whether romance, power, reason, success, money, or the self, we all elevate something. So here's my question for us this morning to reflect on. And really, let's take a moment to let this question be put to us honestly. Who's on the throne, really? What or whom do you worship? Who's on the throne? What or whom do you worship? Maybe that's a really hard question for you to answer. It is a hard question for us to answer without having thought about maybe for a week in advance or a few days in advance. So what I want to try and do is help us together to answer this question by thinking of how we identify the idols in our hearts. Here's the important part. We, need to, we, we really need to get to grips with this reality. We may be tempted to think that an idol is a bad thing in and of itself. This is not true. It's not. It's usually something we consider to be good. Idolatry is when we take a good thing and we turn it into an ultimate thing in our lives. I think that's a helpful working definition of idolatry for us to hold on to. Idolatry is when we take a good thing and turn it into an ultimate thing. It's not a bad thing to begin with, necessarily, but a good thing that takes on ultimate significance for us. This means almost anything could be an idol and could be served as a counterfeit God in our lives. The human heart takes things like a successful career, material possessions, even family, and deifies them by placing them at the very center of our lives. They absorb our imagination, they absorb our hearts, and they demand to be crowned. They say to us, crown me, follow me, love me. You may be thinking, okay, interesting, Um, maybe, maybe not, interesting to you, but how am I expected to know what my idol is? A 
especially if idols operate more on a subconscious level or in the realm of reflexive desires and actions, things that just we happen to do that we don't think about, reflect on. So here are three tests that I think we can put to our hearts. Three tests that I want to submit to you that maybe a combination of these or one of these in particular stands out to you that might be helpful in identifying. The first test is our daydreams. What returns to you again and again in your unthinking moments when you're not consciously focused on anything? Where does your mind go to? What returns? When you drift off and think of the good life, what do you picture? When you think of the best possible life for you, what comes into your mind? Our daydreams are a helpful test. A second one is the opposite, maybe. It's our nightmares. What is it that quickens your pulse, churns your stomach, or sours your mood when you imagine no longer having it? Something that's taken from you or removed. What regularly keeps you up late, disrupts your sleep, or reduces your appetite? What emerges in your nightmares? It's another helpful test. Daunting test, but helpful test. And then a third one, maybe this might be a surprising one, is excessive emotions. These are those explosive or disproportionate emotional responses to things that happen to us or around us. That's not to say emotions are bad or, or strong feelings are bad, but to say that the feelings we have in this case are disproportionate to what has happened to us. They don't fit as a response with what we are going through or what is happening around us. Where do those kinds of emotions appear in our lives, in your own life, in my life? Where do you unravel? What makes you burn with anger or bitterness, jealousy or self-loathing? Where do those kinds of emotions come up for you? I would say that that's a helpful test to try and detect uh, what has been bumped um, or threatened as a potential idol in your life. I don't know which one of those resonates with you most. Maybe it's a combination, maybe it's all three. But, but I would encourage us as individuals to sit with these tests this week. Don't let it be a, a condemnatory experience. Don't let it be a guilt experience. There's absolutely no point to that. But let it be a moment where you allow God to bring freedom to your heart and mind by lifting these things up into your conscious awareness. I would encourage you. I've been doing it this week. It's been pretty tough. I will be honest. Um, I, I want to practice what I preach quite literally. So I... Um, I did this this week, and I've been finding it really surprising what has come up, in, come up in my own heart this week, which is, in particular for me, the reality of being squeezed financially in this season has been hard for me to reckon with. When I think about daydreams, I think about a financially spacious place that I can <laughs> roll around and maybe with some of these fake notes um, <laughs> where I'm, I'm comfortable and there's no worrying about if we can get that third grocery order in, you know, this month, um, uh, or whatever it is. But that's where my daydreams go. In my nightmares, I worry about spreadsheets. I genuinely do. I'm that kind of guy. I worry about the spreadsheet working. I worry about all the numbers going in and, 
and our costs not exceeding our income. Not because we spend a lot of money and we really don't, but because things are tight. But the reality is that doesn't have to necessarily feel like a massive threat to me. Financial strain doesn't have to take on this proportion of a giant in my life. It's real and it has to be dealt with and we need to be wise, obviously. But the fact that it has appeared in my daydreams and my nightmares and in excessive emotions that I've felt surrounding this particular theme has been an indication to me that I think this has got a grip on my heart in a way that it shouldn't. And that has been pretty tough um, to acknowledge. I don't know what it is for you. Uh, I don't know how honest you can be with yourself in this moment. Maybe it, it takes a bit more reflection. But the reality is that God wants our hearts to be free. God wants our hearts to be free from the grip of all sorts of things that are leading us into greater and greater unfreedom. See, daydreams, nightmares, excessive emotions are three tests we can put to our heart. And as you do, you might be surprised to find a host of idolatrous commitments dictating your emotions and choices. But Dallas Willard has said that a crucial aspect to the Christian life is for us to have a well-kept heart. I love that picture, a well-kept heart. So how do we do that? How do we learn to keep our hearts in the freedom and the love of God in these areas? So I'm glad you've asked that question because it's my last point, um, <laughs> which is how do we resist the idols in our lives? I've got a few more minutes um, left, so stay with me. Don't check out just yet. This is, this is the really important part. How do we resist the idols in our hearts? Well, first, let me just say a quick word about why we need to resist. Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through to 25 is a really, really crucial uh, portion of text in the New Testament. Uh, Paul writing about what has happened to humanity since we have decided to love and serve other things. And he basically has said that our primary mistake is that we have worshipped and served created things instead of the Creator. This is the primary problem that we live with in our hearts, and it's a problem that is ongoing uh, today. But the results of this are disastrous, basically, says Paul, because when we worship and serve created things, the created things start to rule over us. They start to rule over us. See, we think we're holding on to freedom when, we start, when we're holding on to these things, but we don't realize that the more we hold on, the less free we become. You're going to be shocked to see this picture on the screen. You wouldn't have expected this probably um, today at church, but here's, here's Gollum from <laughs> The Lord of the Rings. This is the best picture that I can think of of what happens to us when we try to hold on um, to our idols. You become like, you look like Gollum, basically, <laughs> at the end of the day. Before Gollum was Gollum, he was Smeagol. He was a human being, a person, um, who alongside, I think I've got that right. He was a hobbit. Yeah, he was a, oh, sorry. <laughs> Let me just step back. Um, excessive emotion, yeah. So, he was something else before he was Gollum, all right? And until he encounters the ring, and as he holds on to this ring, he believes that the power that comes from this ring essentially makes him the most powerful being in the whole of Middle-earth. 
And unfortunately, what starts to happen is he stops realizing the power this ring has over him. And the more that he holds on to this ring, the less freedom he has to be rid of its effect on his own life, and the less human he becomes, sorry, hobbit-like he becomes <laughs> over time, starts to be dehumanized, to use that word, as he holds on to the ring, dehobbitized. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. You get the picture. The more we hold on, the more we think that holding on leads to our freedom, the less free we truly are. This is not because God wants to induce guilt, but because God is after freedom in our hearts. This has to be clear in us before we embark on this journey. Okay, that's the why, how. How do we resist? The most effective way, I think, as I've been reading kind of people who've been thinking about this for a lot longer than I have, the most effective way to combat our idols, especially the ones in which we feel most trapped by, is to fight them indirectly. Let me explain. So here's another picture for us. This is a rock that is being dropped uh, in water. What you'll notice is that the rock is carving its own way through the water, displacing the lighter object that it comes into contact with. The weightier thing will always displace the lighter thing. Someone called Thomas Chalmers once called this the expulsive power of a new affection. Don't get distracted by that phrase, but the expulsive power of a new affection. See, the thing about idols is they cannot be removed from our lives. They can only be replaced. They can only be replaced. And you can't just remove an affection that already exists in your heart. You have to replace it with a new overmastering affection, one that has greater weight to displace what is already there in your heart. That's what we mean by saying we fight the idols and the loves, the rival gods in our, in our hearts indirectly. Blunt force doesn't work. White knuckling doesn't work. Beating yourself up with guilt doesn't work. None of that works. Idols cannot be forcibly removed, only replaced. So if you're swamped by fear in your life, for example, Julia mentioned this uh, earlier at Balaam, don't try to remove it with force. Replace it with something that has a greater weight to it, the love of God. See, love is weightier than fear. Fear feels like the most powerful master, but to be honest, it's, it's not as weighty as love. The scriptures talk about love driving out fear in our lives. Don't go at fear directly. Go at love and you'll find fear starting to dissipate and becoming displaced in your life. If you're feeling consumed by lust, don't make abstaining from sexual sin your goal. Rather, focus on delighting yourself in God and asking for his love to satisfy you. Go at it indirectly. So we often feel like, like our desires themselves are a problem. They're either too big, we want things too much, we should just want things less than we really want them. That's the problem. Our desires are too strong. But it's not that our desires in and of themselves are bad or too strong. C.S. Lewis put it like this in his sermon he, he once gave called The Weight of Glory. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. 
We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So you don't need to desire less. The truth is that we settle too easily for a weaker fulfillment of our desires. But as we pursue the source that is truly able to satisfy and fulfill, we find that there is so much more to feel, to desire. So what do we do about all of this as we come into to close this morning? What, what do we do with identifying, resisting? As I've been praying uh, through this verse for today, the verse we read right in the beginning, I found that the love command that's given to us really struck me as, as being quite curious. How is it that God can command us to love him? Have you thought about that before? How do you command love? We all know that you can't command a feeling. You can't command yourself uh, to be happy, necessarily. You can't command yourself to have a good sense of humor in a day where it's just not there. Um, or tiredness. You can't just command these things away or to be present. So how is it that God commands us to love him with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind? Well, the fact that God does this implies that we have a choice. We have a choice to love God and place God at the very center of our lives. There is a choice. We're not victims. We're not helpless. We're not powerless. We actually do have agency and a choice. It's like a power steering wheel. As you turn the wheel, the power kicks in. As we make a choice to place God in front of us, and to choose to love him above all others, a power kicks in. God's grace kicks in. We can choose to turn from rival loves and choose to turn to God. We can. We really can. And this is what the Bible calls repentance. Repentance, which is a word that has been weaponized by some um, in the past and in the church, but all it really means, if you go back to how it was originally used, is it means to change your mind. To change your mind, to turn around and go in the other direction. That's what repentance means. Change your mind. Change the direction in which you are moving. And we can do that. We can choose freedom and God's love in our hearts over these other things that promise freedom but really choose, uh, end up being the things that enslave us. So what I want to do is I want to call the, uh, the worship teams up um, here in Balham, also in Battersea um, and Westside. And uh, as they come up, I want, to, I want to give us a moment just to sit with this. I recognize this is not your average light. I mean, hopefully, hopefully Sundays aren't averagely light. Um, but this is not your average Sunday sermon. This is, this is challenging stuff. This is going, hopefully, to the heart of things. And I want to give us a moment just to sit and let God take um, what has been said today and apply something to our hearts this morning. So can I invite us um, to stand, if you're able to, um, all across the different sites. Can you just stand with me as we do that? If you're comfortable just to close your eyes, we're going to just wait on God for a moment.
just ask the Holy Spirit right now what, what God wants to say to you this morning. What is he wanting to apply to your heart this morning? I believe that God wants to create space for genuine freedom to happen this morning. For decisions of repentance, of turning toward God again to lead to freedom in our lives. That's you. If there's something that has come up today that you know you could repent of this morning, you could turn from this morning. Don't be afraid to do that. Go ahead and do that right now. Father, we thank you that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. That we're not to be burdened again by a yoke of slavery but to remain free by remaining in your love. And I want to pray for every person here that has felt trapped. Lord, that you would bring freedom right now in Jesus' name. Come, Holy Spirit. Come and bring freedom right now. Would you displace fear with your love this morning? Would you come and lift the heavy load off of people this morning and lead us into the soul rest of Jesus? Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.